you know, we really don't want this place to be precious. We want the, you know, if the cyclists from around the corner are coming in and wheel the bikes in and lean up against the wall without, you know, that being, you know, feeling weird or feeling uncomfortable. That sympathy for where you are and who you're there for uh, is, is really important. Today on Dirty Linen, we are talking about the world of coffee, something that I am very passionate about every single day. We are talking to Tim Stiles. He is someone who's been integral to the specialty coffee uh, push in Australia and also in the UK. Tim, welcome to Dirty Linen. Thanks for having me. I'm really thrilled to have you here. Um, I think I need to start by asking you how you, what kind of coffee you like to start the day with. That's a good question. Uh, generally, I'll, I'll start the day with uh, filter coffee uh, off, uh, off the batch brewer in the roastery because my, my days have been starting pretty early the last little while uh, and that's the one that's ready to go. Um, before that, I would always brew coffee at home uh, in the morning uh, just on a, a really simple pour over, um, nice and easy. The, yeah, the, the quality of the beans is much, much more important than the brewer itself. So yeah, we keep it pretty simple. Mm, interesting. And what, uh, what coffee beans and what style of roast are you loving at the moment? Right now we're pretty much at the tail end of the, uh, East African coffee season. So, uh, we, really just working our way through the last of what's really fresh out of Ethiopia and Kenya. So right now I've been drinking a lot of, uh, a lot of our Kenyan roasts and um, yeah, in that bittersweet moment where almost like, you know, kind of the end of summer, you know, when the tomatoes are just starting to like, you know, drop off a little bit. Uh, that's where we're at with uh, Kenyan coffee right now. There's only probably two or three more months, I'd say, where they're going to be really good. I mean, even even as you say that, I just realise that this is going to be a mind-blowing conversation because I reckon 99% of people would never think of coffee as a seasonal product. Mm. I mean, what are some of the things that we don't think about when we're drinking coffee that you think should we should? That, that I mean, that's a huge list. Um, <laughs> so I'll try and uh, be quite... Um concise with it um I, I do think like the seasonality thing is a is a huge one uh and there are a lot of roasters in australia that have been doing a lot of great work around i think communicating the fact that the coffee is seasonal um that that's a really big one um i think one of the things that we sort of try and talk to our team about a lot and and um help our team understand is the difference between coffee the drink and coffee the ingredient and you know we obviously we sell cups of coffee that are, that are finished products and then we also sell bags of coffee and trying to get people to understand that um that a bag of coffee is not a finished product but that's an ingredient that you need to take home and prepare um and how you need to i think communicate differently based upon that versus just, just handing somebody a finished drink that they're going to sip at. I, I noticed also one of your recent tweets was around, you know, the, the 
I guess, political and social situation in Ethiopia and just sort of suggesting that mm. if people are enjoying some Ethiopian coffee, like why don't you just perhaps learn a little bit about what's happening in that country at the moment? I mean, do you think that, that I mean, you know, we're, we're supposed to be all about produce and origins and, you know, farm to plate these days. I mean, do you feel like there's still quite a way to go with coffee? Unfortunately, there is, yeah, I think because it's, um, you know, the places where coffee is grown are so far away from us here in Melbourne or, or really anywhere in Australia. Um, and so the opportunity for baristas to connect to coffee producers is very, very limited. Um, you know, the first time I ever went to a coffee farm, all the all the steps of the process really um, connected in my mind and, and, and I got a, a much more holistic view of coffee and a better understanding of coffee and the, the, the depths of that supply chain. Uh, but that's a really, really difficult thing to communicate and um, to understand if you don't get to experience it. So I, I think, unfortunately, most baristas and, and even a lot of roasters um, in Australia just haven't had the opportunity to get below the surface of, of coffee. Um, and I, I, I think our understanding of coffee is pretty uh, out of context um, from, you know, like like that tweet that you're referencing about the situation in Tigray and, yeah, it's, it's hard to get your head around what's going on there if you don't have any connection to it at all. I mean, part of me now is starting to think to my own alarm that we maybe we shouldn't even be drinking coffee in Australia. I mean, it, what are the – talk me out of that. I, I mean, I, I run through the same thing a lot of times. Uh, you know, there's a lot of conflict, you know, for me personally around – you know, it's it's really hard to do coffee um, with 100% confidence that everyone in that supply chain is being paid fairly and and being treated fairly. Um, even if you're at the farms, you know you, you you can see what's happening, but you have to work very very hard to get below the surface to understand who's getting paid what and who owns what and those sorts of things. So, I think that's a um, a very uh, sort of in tune um, uh, concern to have. And I guess the flip side for me is if everyone just pulls out and says, well, we're just not going to do coffee because it's, it's too difficult to work out um, and there's too much uncertainty, then you've got the livelihoods of million, literally millions of people um, around the world that dry up instantly uh, and in a lot of those communities coffee may be the only cash crop that they're producing uh, everything else may be subsistence um, uh, farming and if you then take away the only thing that you can actually exchange for cash um, there are no school fees to be paid um, books to be bought for kids, uh, all, all, all the things that, you know, we almost take for granted here, um, they dry up pretty much instantly. Yeah, I mean, it is very fraught, isn't it? Because I suppose, you know, you can apply those same kinds of arguments 
to any kind of economic sanctions that you apply around the world to any any country, any situation, of course, people are going to be harmed if the money doesn't flow in. But if the money isn't flowing ethically, then it's um, it's really, yeah, it's just really problematic. Yeah. I think like the Myanmar situation um, not that long ago was, you know, a good example of that where, you know, there were political issues in Myanmar and calls for boycotts and sanctions. And the only people who are getting hurt by those sanctions are uh farmers and producers and um you know people much further down the supply chain than the people that you're trying to impact um and yeah i i can't really see that that's the right way to go about it uh and that's i guess the same dichotomy that we think about um in terms of how do we buy coffee in a way that's um as responsible as as we can be um you know especially being in Australia and especially being under travel restrictions, um, that makes makes those transactions significantly harder to do um, with the kind of transparency or insight that we'd like to have in them. That's mm. uh, yeah, it's it's so big. I, I remember yeah. you know, a couple of years ago, I wrote a big feature article about coffee and you know whether the price of coffee was too low, which you know we can probably quickly agree is the case. But it, I I really just you know, from you're in it, you're in it for your life. Like I was just d- deep in it for a few months, but it's it, it became so quickly evident how complex it is as an industry. Um, it touches every country. The supply chain is so complex. And, you know, I think one of the things that I found hardest to get my head around was this, was the fact that coffee was, a, was traded as a commodity, which feels like it, makes instantly makes it so disconnected from these largely micro farmers that actually grow the beans. Mm. Um, can you just explain the commodity side of coffee trade? I can explain it to, to the extent that I understand it. Um, and, uh, you know, I'll caveat it with the, the fact that there are a lot of, a lot of people a lot more educated on this and in tune with this than, than I am who probably, you know, tear their hair out at my inaccuracies but you know essentially um like coffee until reasonably recently coffee was basically traded as a commodity and it was assumed that a cup of coffee was a cup of coffee or a kilo of coffee beans were a kilo of coffee beans and they were pretty much interchangeable um it didn't really matter whether where they came from as long as they weighed a kilo and they produced a cup of coffee at the end um, and there was a big breakaway um, from that um, not too long ago where people started wanting to be more closely connected to the people who were producing the coffee, particular coffees and being able to keep unique coffees out of these bulk commodity huge um, lots. So, you know, essentially, if you are a farmer who's producing 150 kilos to 200 kilos a year and your coffee is incredibly good, but it gets bulked in with a container of, you know, another 15,000 kilos of coffee, what's special and unique about that coffee is completely lost. So that's really where the, the industry sort of diverged into two different streams with bulk commodity coffee being the generic stuff that's all around and everywhere, and then the specialty coffee being the more specific um, uh, 
understandable, traceable uh, coffee from particular origins with its own particular characteristics. Um, the commodity market still affects the specialty market in terms of price. Um, and we're, we're actually seeing some huge issues around that right now um, with the commodity price of coffee going through the roof and that's having a big knock-on effect for, uh, for for the special coffee, the stuff that, you know, you'd be more familiar with drinking in, in a Melbourne cafe. Um, and just to continue on the huge issues that impact and intersect with coffee, we, we can't really talk about coffee farming without talking about climate change. Mm. I mean, it's, um, yeah, you know, some places that have been, fantastic for for growing coffee are less so or they're impacted by severe weather events i mean how are you seeing that um impact what you do uh i well i think one of the bigger impacts that we're seeing is um that coffee farming is just getting harder um and there's fewer incentives to keep doing it so um i know that there's um, a number of roasters in Australia that have been really championing this message for a long time um, around climate change especially, but but I guess also climate change connected to what we're prepared to pay for coffee because, you know, you can overcome a lot of challenges if there's a financial incentive to do so, but if there isn't, you, you, you change businesses and it's exactly the same as anyone changing jobs you know, whether you're a chef or a barista or, a, a, you know, whatever role you're in, if there's a financial incentive for you to change, you, you probably will. With the changing climate, um, what we're generally seeing is that the really good coffee-growing areas are getting smaller because they tend to be uh, at altitude and mountains tend to get skinnier towards the top. It's, it's almost a prerequisite of being a mountain. Um, and as it gets warmer, uh, we're seeing that the lower altitude parts of those coffee farms are not able to produce coffee of the same standard that they were. They're much more susceptible to uh, leaf rust and to other um, issues. And so literally, as you have to go further up the mountain, your, your land area gets smaller. Um, that's sort of on one side where there's a decreasing um, physical space to produce the coffee that's required. Um, and then I think we also see not necessarily connected to climate change, but more just connected to a, a general societal shift is that there's a lot of urban sprawl in coffee producing areas that is now starting to encroach onto coffee producing land. So I'm thinking specifically of kind of the outskirts of Nairobi, like especially like around to the north of Nairobi, and Nairobi just keeps growing and growing. It's like crazy. Each year you go back, how much more city you need to drive through to get to the the, the farmland. Um, and there's now coffee farms in sort of the Nyeri region just outside Nairobi that they're being sold off for housing development. Um, and these are some of the you know, absolutely best coffee growing um, soils in the world and um, they, they'll pretty much be paved over for, for housing. Um, and 
going back to sort of dichotomies and conflicts and challenges, I, you know, I adore those coffees. They're, they're basically like the, the, the burgundies of the, of the coffee world. And, um, you know, I'm horrified at the prospect of that land being turned into housing, but it's not my land. It's not my, you know, choice to make. Um, if somebody came and made a really good financial offer for the, the, the property that we roast our coffee from and they were going to put up housing, like, and that ensured... Um, financial stability for my family you know and generations to come well that's a you know a pretty compelling um prospect and something to consider so as much as on one hand i want to say this land should always be farming land and should always be growing incredible uh, coffee and um, it's not it's not really any of my business uh whether that happens or not um so you know this this ongoing cycle of coffee being kind of fraught with um challenges and and colonial input and um uh, being very susceptible to external uh influence it's just it's just rife throughout the industry um it's it can keep you awake at night that's for sure Ah, oh, I mean, honestly, my mind is just swirling with, mm. with with questions and and problems and feelings because I'm sort of thinking, okay, that's okay. So I definitely need to pay eight dollars for a cup of coffee so that we can save those lands. So, that, but then that also feels, yeah, like a really colonial project. It's like, no, from outside, I want to decide what happens on this land. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's so incredibly complex. Yeah, I, I think the 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 issue around the price of a cup of coffee is so unbelievably fraught as well, because there's no, there's just absolutely no way of knowing how much is going back to where. And I, I remember your article and um, and how in depth it was, and how um, how it was such. It felt like a real watershed that this was being talked about um, at all, and the part that um the cynical part of me uh uh felt that there would probably be uh, you know other um less scrupulous uh coffee operators around the country you know rubbing their hands a little bit and saying great we'd, we'd love to see an eight dollar latte because uh you know we can pull seven dollars 75 profit out of that um uh so yeah it's um it is one of those unfortunate uh, situations where just paying more doesn't necessarily get you there. You, yeah, you, you really of course. need to, um, yeah, dig dig deeper into that. It's just such a different product. You know, if you think about, I can go to my local farmers market and buy, you know, uh, uh, you know, a, a steak from the farmer who grew the cow, and I can be pretty confident that as I put the money into their hands, that you know they'll actually be able to put it into their pocket. Of course, yep. you know there's, but the coffee supply chain is so incredibly complex. I mean, you can't even, we don't even know if the barista's being paid properly, let alone the person who's you know pulling the the cherries off the tree. That's it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I often look at other industries kind of a little enviously and and think you know. It must be nice to um, uh, to have something that's so cut and dry, and you could be so confident in um, the ethics of. Um, but you know, I think every every industry has its issues, and and coffee certainly um, has its particular set of issues. That just uh, 
often feels to me like we've we've got <laughs> we've got more and they run a lot deeper. Yeah. Okay, Tim. So you got heavy com- really quick. We got so heavy, but coffee so, is like that. I think. I mean, you, we could, you, you know, you can have similar conversations about other products. Like chocolate is the next one that springs to mind. It's sure. um, it's so embedded in our culture. You can't imagine the life without it. But my goodness, when you start, um, yeah, start looking into it, it's 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 as yeah. fraught. I reckon. Um, that's, that's a really um, sorry. Just to touch on that. Um, yeah. When you talk about. Um, you know, chocolate being so embedded in in our um, culture, I, I feel like that's one of the biggest issues that we have around coffee, especially in Melbourne, is we have on the plus side, it is so ingrained in our lives. It's so important. You know, whenever I talk to um, friends, stakeholders, um, partners and stuff all around the world, I talk about what happened in COVID and how everything in Australia got shut down. You couldn't go to funerals. You couldn't go to the gym. You couldn't uh, take your kids to kinder, but you could still get a takeaway latte. And that, that, that was the one line that we were never prepared to cross. But that, with that sort of very ingrained nature, you know, we've got the, the flip side of that, which is really problematic, is that, you know, it feels like part of Australian culture or a birthright of being um, a Melbourneite is that, you can get two lattes a day and change from ten dollars, and and nothing should ever be able to change that. Um, and you know we are so that very established coffee culture also really keeps us in a bit of a channel where it's very hard to then do what's necessary to to improve. Um, and I think that's that other that other real source of tension that we have um, in coffee. Um, you know, we definitely don't want to move away from what's made Melbourne coffee so ubiquitous and such a, an internationally kind of treasured thing. Um, but we also want to make sure that we don't just sit in the perpetual cycle of what's been good from 1985 to 1997 and never um, develop beyond that. Okay, I love coffee. I love drinking it. I love going to cafes and having it. I definitely appreciate it. But I will also acknowledge that there is there is just something extremely problematic about it um but tim 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 tell me about bureau this is the company that you've launched in melbourne um just tell us what you're up to up to these days yeah um yeah so bureau coffee yeah we actually started um back in december december 2015 um i'd been away living um either in London or LA for about 10 years and uh, came back to Melbourne. Um, wasn't quite sure what the future held or what to do. Um, had Came back with uh, uh, with my wife, um, a two-year-old, and uh, yeah, we were three months pregnant with twins. So we said, uh, I think we arrived back on December 15th and December 16th we um, started the company. Um, and I, you know, while I sort of like got a bit of a sense of what was happening back in Australia, I, I wanted to have a business that was fairly um, flexible. And um, we actually started Bureau as a as a roasting collective, so we didn't roast our own coffee um, under a Bureau brand. We we would do collaborations and we would help other people roast. So we actually started out by roasting uh, for 
uh, Noma when they came here for their um, for their residency in Sydney, and uh, and they were our first client. And we roasted for them. Um, we started working with a bunch of cafes who wanted to start roasting their own coffee, and uh, we would teach them how to how to use a roaster, how to how to source coffee, um, and then they would rent time on on our equipment. And we did that for sort of three and a half, four years, but uh, there was always that um, pull for me to get back into what I'd sort of spent most of my career doing, which was sourcing coffee and uh, and then roasting and retailing. So we decided, um, which probably two and a half years ago, that that's where we're going to move, be moving um, our future to. Uh, and we were slowly working on things in the background and, and getting all the bits and pieces together. And then COVID hit and um, like probably a lot of uh, restaurants or event organisers or, or anyone around the world who was, uh, you know, service providers, um, we spent a solid six days uh, just taking cancellations and uh, watching the, um, the the future of the business evaporate. So... The other side of our business is an international events company and that evaporated to zero overnight. Um, and we uh, basically had to pull the trigger on turning Bureau from a roasting collective into a roastery uh, as quickly as we could. So we had some packaging design that we were working on and we approved it and sent it to print straight away and we built a um online store in about 72 hours and got that live and um started the very long slow and arduous process of building a, a roasted coffee brand uh basically from scratch um in the middle of a pandemic so wow that, yeah that's kind of what the last year and a half has been um focused on and and what we've been doing how's it how's it going like is it yeah is it all right I mean, we're still here, so you know, it's it's uh, it's, it's it's we've cleared that threshold. Um, yeah, look, we've been really fortunate that we had you know a number of uh, relationships um, that we were able to, um, I guess, capitalize on and uh, and start doing some wholesale roasting for people that we already had uh, good relationships with. Um, in terms of you know the scale of the business like it's maybe a third of in terms of revenue probably about a third of what we were doing previously um the flip side of that though i think is that it's a it's a significantly happier third uh than when we were on that um hamster wheel sort of really pushing all the time and um you know really i think really running ourselves ragged to try and um rinse every second of productivity out of a day and and that kind of thing um i think the business these days and the team these days uh is you know in a significantly better place um emotionally and uh and uh yeah as a team um and so that's a really that's a really nice part of what's come out of the pandemic for us I mean, it's it's so interesting to hear you, hear you say that. I think, you know, I've heard that from other people, you know, that enforced slowdown 
has actually shown people some differences that they want to hang on to. I mean, is it is it mostly just about doing less and being less busy or is there a kind of, I don't know, something, other sort of intentional changes that you've made and that you wish to you stick, stick with? Uh, yeah, there's quite a few. I think one of them is not having to travel as much, which has been, um, you know, I, I love traveling but it definitely puts a lot of stress on a family and also on um, on other people in the business. Uh, and I think, you know, it can create a bit of a disconnect um, in a team. So actually being in Melbourne or in Australia for a year and a half uh, stretch, which, you know, would never have happened before, that's been a real, a real benefit. So we're being a lot more, um, I think, deliberate with travel Um and I think you're prioritizing kind of team cohesiveness over over that, um, just responding to sort of demands of, of people in, in other countries that would like us to go and visit. So I think that's that's something that we are, are pretty keen to hang on to. Um, and I think just in general, a bit of life balance. Um, some of that about what we choosing really judiciously like what we say yes to and um, I guess focusing on work and projects that are going to be things that we enjoy. Um, We're sort of halfway through building a little bakery um, as part of of what we do here at Bureau Um, and it's definitely not because it's like makes a hell of a lot of financial sense to bake your own bread uh, but it's a very sort of emotionally nourishing process and um, something that, you know, the, the team has been really enjoying being a part of, I think. Um, I've certainly really enjoyed uh, everything that we've been learning about, um, the you know, the sourdough process and uh, that kind of thing. And um, it's, it's a bit more... Yeah, I guess like emotionally nourishing is probably as, as good a descriptor as I can come up with at the moment. Um, yeah, uh, and and just sort of things that are tangible, things that are um, satisfying and uh, and rewarding in that sense. We we want to really be focusing more on those things. So, when's the bakery going to open? Will it be a retail space or will you be wholesaling? It'll be retail, yeah. Um, I think I think we'll probably open it in the new year. Um, we have hit the kind of the, the challenges of um, that everyone's hit with um, building supplies and builder supplies um, so far. So we've got actually kind of got everything ready to go. Um, we just need to finish changing up some of the uh, the way the coffee bar operates in order to be able to you know, display and sell bread and, and some of those food items as well. So I can't really actually at this point see it happening this side of Christmas and I plan on taking a bit of time off as well. So um, I would say it's probably going to be a new year venture. Now oh, it's something to look forward to. Um, so, Tim, we were chatting earlier and you mentioned that you, you're seeing some changes in the cafe business model. I, I'm sure you in- interact with a lot of different cafe owners um tell me what you've been seeing as people sort of you know reframe their businesses in the current landscape uh yeah there's been some 
obviously some pretty huge changes across the board. Um, I think the, the biggest one that I think is actually probably quite a good thing um, from my perspective anyway, like I, you know, like yourself, someone who has always loved going to cafes and, um, you know, basically my, my entire working life being involved in, in that aspect of the industry. And it was really interesting um, spending 10 years as a, as a Melbourne outsider and being somebody who, who lived away and would come back and visit, you know, periodically. I think it'd be very easy to say, like, if you don't live here, you don't understand what's going on. Um, but I also think you get a really, um, uh, like, crisp insight into what's happening when you when you come back periodically and you can notice those changes um, in basically in, like, stark relief. Um, and one of those things that I really noticed um, changing over those, those 10 years that I was away was that it seemed like the business model of cafes changed and not not across the board but um in a reasonably heavy degree away from the business model being about making a profit from selling food and drinks to making a profit from establishing a business building it up Giving you know, getting a lot of brand traction behind it, and then selling it to someone else, and so it, you know it didn't matter so much. Like you just needed to make sure the books looked adequate, um, you know, in that eighteen months to twenty four months that you owned it for. Um, but really, it wasn't about building something for the long term. It was about building something to sell pretty quickly. And I think the bottom has fallen out of that. Um, it, lo- it certainly looks from the outside like the bottom has fallen out of that. The amount of people who I think had businesses that they were building up with the idea that they would have their payday on the day they got to sell it. Um, the amount of people who I've talked to who have just walked away from those businesses, had keys back to the landlord, um, salvaged whatever they could in terms of espresso machines, dishwashers or whatever, and then, you know, almost left the keys in the letterbox. Um, I feel like that model has moved away a bit. Um and I think that would actually be a really great thing for, for Melbourne and for Melbourne hospitality to, to get back to really the the fundamentals of what hospitality businesses should be, or, you know, in my opinion anyway, um, which are longer-term prospects, which were about building day-to-day trade, um, not really relying so much on a, a really big pop of interest when you first open, Um really about trying to build things that last. Um, and I think about, you know, a number of the, the, the places in Melbourne that do a really good job of that and how um, iconic they are and um, how I think it would be such a shame if we if we didn't have any more of those types of businesses coming through. Um, but I do think, thankfully, that the um, kind of build it to, to flip it bubble has burst um, to a pretty substantial extent and that maybe um, that is a an indicator of um, a more positive kind of five years ahead or so. Mm, it's really, yeah. I mean, to me, it sort of smacks of a, uh, a short attention span and then people sort of realising that perhaps that's 
can be quite shallow and unsatisfying both for the people who are doing it and for the people who are engaging with those businesses as as customers and suppliers. Um, and then, yeah, people looking for something that's a little bit more rich and deep rather mm. than, you know, fast and flashy. Yeah. Well, it must also just be exhausting. Like if you're, if the entire model is just about like, you know, what is going to garner likes on Instagram or what is going to get a big pop in broadsheet that, you know, means that we're busy for long enough to inflate the the books to to look good for a sale. Um, you know, there's, yeah, it must just be exhausting. But it's also really heavy on resources and waste as well. Like if those fit-outs are getting turned over every 18 to 24 months, um, you know, it just doesn't seem like a really good use of materials or energy. Um, you know, I'd much rather see places that are, are built to last. Yeah, so would I. I reckon you know you want you want to believe that it's going to feel nicer to be in those places, just a bit richer and more authentic. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I think there's been a lot of, um, yeah, I guess for for, for my take anyway, like fairly um, soulless kind of cafe ventures and. Um, I, yeah, I just think that, you know, cafes have always been such a, a community hub and, um, you know, the first place that, that I ever worked in in specialty, it, it drew me in because from the outside it was obviously this scene of things going on um, and I just had to pull over and find out what was happening. Um, Where was that? That was uh, Ray in Brunswick. Oh, um, classic. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's that must be 20 years ago. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's still there. Uh, and, you know, it's probably changed a fair bit over those 20 years. Um, but, you know, it, it just it just dripped character and just dripped uh, um, sincerity and uh, the amount of alumni from there that have gone to do really incredible things. Um, yeah, has always been really interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, that is interesting because like Mark Dundon, who started that, doesn't own it and it's probably, it may well have changed hands a few times, I don't know, but perhaps there is something in it. It's not like you, you start something and you have to like anchor yourself there forever, but maybe it's also about, you know, if and when it does feel like the right time to move on, it's about who you sell it to and it's it's those businesses that change hands with almost, you know, it's like passing the baton, then that's really different from, you know, flipping a business sort of in, a, in, a, in an office somewhere that's really a bit unrelated to the, the, the life and the breath of the cafe itself. Yeah. Well, I think Ray's a really good example of a, a, a place that was there for its neighbourhood and, and was, you know, simpatico with that neighbourhood in a way that was like really insightful and clever. And, um, and so, you know, if you buy it, you don't need to flip it again in 18 months when the next fad comes along because it's it's it runs deeper than that um and i think that's the like i'm a big fan of hectares like like pretty much everyone else in melbourne uh, and if i was dom i would just be like walking down the street just gobsmacked at um how many clones there are of that <laughs> that that of the appearance of that business um, showing up everywhere. And, you know, that I, I think that fad will fade away, 
you, you know, I would imagine that Hector's will continue because it's it's doing what it set out to do, not not in response to what everyone else uh, has, you know, gotten notoriety from. Yeah. Well, I think another thing with Hectors, and I would definitely recommend to everyone go back and listen to my chat with Dom from Hectors a few months ago. So, you know, the South Melbourne store that they've recently opened is so different to the Richmond original and the Fitzroy store that they're opening next year will be very different again. And I was chatting to Dom recently and he was just saying, you know, how much time he's spending in other businesses in Fitzroy just to get the feel. And it's not about rolling out a franchise. It's about, yeah, responding to to each location in a, a really quite different way. And it, I think it's it's very respectful to a neighbourhood when you, you know, try to meet it, you know, give it something it hasn't got, but but it's in line with the character or it's, 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 it's knowing the neighbourhood well enough to see the gap. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, that's something we've been really um, thinking about a lot with you know, the coffee bar and the upcoming bakery in our space because, you know, we're on an industrial side street in Abbotsford. Like, uh, you know, we're straight across the road from the Moondog Brewery, but it's um, there's, you know, there's panel beaters, there's the brothel, you know, there's um, like this is not um, Abbot Kinney Boulevard in Los Angeles, it's not, um, you know, the, the places that I ran in, in the middle of uh, Marlebone in London. And so to just, like, take those mindsets and try and implant that here would just be, I mean, it's, it's almost insulting, you know. Um, <laughs> it's just so disconnected from what the neighbourhood wants or needs or is looking for. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're, we're trying to be... Um, I guess in a similar way to Dom, like be really um, sensitive to the people who are around us. And what's been astonishing is that we were here for three years before we had any kind of retail presence whatsoever. Um, and then when we opened up the, the doors and started serving coffee, uh, we we really managed to get to meet our neighbours. And, and this was in the middle of the pandemic. And um, then our neighbours started meeting our neighbours who – you know, they'd been working on the same street for five or six years and had never interacted because there was there was no communal focal point in the street. So that's been a really a really nice thing to be a part of and part of what we're I think trying to um trying to keep at the heart of what we do. Um you know, and that's really informing a lot of decisions around how we do fit outs and how we you know what finishes and stuff we use. Um because, we, you know, we really don't want this place to be precious. We want the, you know, if the cyclists from around the corner are coming in and, and don't have bike locks, we want them to be able to wheel the bikes in and lean them against the wall without, you know, that being, you know, feeling weird or feeling uncomfortable or that kind of thing. So, yeah, I think that, that sympathy for where you are and um, who you're who you're there for um, is, is really important and just making that cookie-cutter build the Instagram account, um, you know, get the, the right um, colour palette and just drop it into any neighbourhood. Uh, I think I think a lot a lot of people have come unstuck with that recently and I think more possibly will um, and hopefully we just see a bit more of a shift away from it. 
Mm. Um, so, Tim, you mentioned that you have this international events company that, as part of what you do, and obviously that's had a pretty tough time. Are you able to bring any events back now? We are. Um, I mean, that one's been incredible. Um, so it's it's a coffee-making competition that got started 13 years ago by uh, literally three people in a room in Oslo um, and they're all brewing coffee on an AeroPress, which if, if people don't know is basically a $50 home coffee maker, um, a manual manual coffee brewer. And they, they wanted to see who could brew the best cup of coffee on that thing and sarcastically named the event, the, uh, it wasn't even an event at the time, but uh, named it the World AeroPress Championship. Uh, and as these things go very occasionally, uh, it just grew and grew Um I got on board about seven years ago to help actually stabilise the thing and make it um, make it viable. Uh, and you know we've grown into a, a worldwide coffee competition. Um, you know up to sixty five countries competing, uh, about four and a half thousand people taking part each year. Um, and you know that's the if you if you wanted to like create a COVID super spreader event, like this would be the perfect thing. You bring 750 people from 65 different countries and you put them all into one room and then you have them all taste coffee from the same bowls and slurp and, you know, um, interact and then go back to your own countries. Um, so, you know, that's the one that disappeared overnight. Um, and we, yeah, definitely ended up on a little bit of a, a wild goose chase um, with that. We, we're pretty okay just to kick that into touch for... Um, a year while we just worked out what was going to happen. And then we were confident that we'd be able to bring back the World Championship this year. Um, we, at the times that we had to make the decisions, Melbourne was in a really good position. Um, I'm sure you remember like, when we were on top of the world with uh, our COVID response. And, Donut uh, days. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so we said, okay, well, look, the safest place in the world um, to do this world final will be in Melbourne and we'll do it in December. Um, and if we can get even 15 countries uh, to host national events, then we'll call that success for the year and we'll focus on rebuilding again the year after. And then our kind of vaccine thing did what it did. Um, and all around the world, we saw vaccine rollouts go really well, everybody opening back up. And we got absolutely flooded with um, hosting requests from people all over the world. And uh, we ended up so far, actually, we just booked another one this morning. Um, we've booked 52 national competitions and something like 65 regional competitions happening. So that thing sprang back to well over 100 events um, happening all around the world. And we had to move the world final in Melbourne because we just weren't going to be able to um, to do it in December. So, so that has come back in a way that was just astonishing. Um, That's amazing. But is it? Uh, are people going around slurping coffee out of the same bowls? We are. We have separated bowls now. Okay. So there's a uh, COVID safe judging uh, judging criteria, uh, and we've uh, yeah we've we've moved all that to. Uh, a method that isn't going to be anywhere near as risky. Um, this year is going to be a bit different as well, where the 
competitors themselves won't be flying in to compete. They're going to be sending their recipe in and on the day a surrogate barista is going to brew it on their behalf as part of the, the usual knockout tournament. So, Oh, my God, what a responsibility. So it's going to be huge, yeah. If people want to um, keep an eye on this competition, how can they do so? Uh, WorldAeropressChampionship.com uh, is probably the best place or our Instagram uh, account is aero.press and we're going to be hosting the world final here in Melbourne uh, in March and we think we'll be able to have maybe 150 to 200 spectators attend uh, which will be very cool Um, it'll be you know the the first event we've done in since London 2019 Um, and, you know, that's really exciting to have that opportunity to put a little mini coffee festival together and, and run that uh, competition and, and get some people in for some food and beer and, and some coffee and, um, and, and have a good time again. Awesome, Tim. Well, yeah, that is going to be really special. Um, and, yeah, thank you for going deep and wide in this conversation. It's been, yeah, you, we obviously you could just talk endlessly about coffee. Um but thank you for, yeah, thanks for going there and good luck with getting the bakery up and going. I look forward to coming in for some sourdough and the coffee yeah. one day my, soon. My pleasure. And thank you to you as well for the, for the podcast series. It's been such a, um, uh, such a kind of a, a rock, I think, to listen to and, and to feel throughout the pandemic to still be connected to, um, to a broader, you know, hospitality community um you know the stuff that you did with joe abood like i worked for joe back at Rumi, you know years ago and i was just so going back to being emotionally nourishing it was just so great to to hear um from other people to be reminded that those other people are out there and that they're going through difficult things as well so you know it was just a, a great resource and um i'm sure many people in the coffee and hospitality industry more broadly have really relied on it so you know it's a commendation to you for for, for pulling it together well, thanks so much for the kind words and I'm glad it's played um, that role for you. That's that's a privilege, so thank you. Um, all right, uh, take care, Tim. It's been fantastic to have you as part of this ongoing conversation. Cheers. All the best. See ya. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This.